Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Coming up, we'll be talking about the brain and why sometimes we give up or quit versus other times when we doggedly persist at something. But now, Ollie Hills published his first book last year. The book is Cicadas of New Zealand. It's an excellent field guide and even better, its author is just 11 years old. I'm off to Hamilton to meet the young entomologist who's offered to take me on a walk in his favourite bit of nature. It's a weedy gully at the back of his garden and he warns me that it's quite steep. That's what I mean by serious hill. Oh right, it's a You've got a rope down your hill. Yes. Before the rope, it was a lot harder. Well, if we go down there, what are we going to find? Glowworms, mayflies, water boatmen. Because there's a little pond down in the bottom there, and most insects like ponds. Oh, excellent. I really think we should go down there then. Okay. Hold on to your microphones. Right, so we've lowered ourselves down to the bottom of the gully, and as you say, there's a little trickle of water coming down the hillside. And the glowworms. There's a glowworm there, there's a glowworm there, and there's some glowworm just there. Now I'm going to have to come in for a closer look, because obviously they're not glowing, because it's the middle of the day. So mm. what are you actually seeing? Uh, you see the little three, kind of thread-like things? Oh, yep. Each glowworm lives in a kind of hammock of mucus that builds itself. Um, it uh, puts down those little kind of fishing lines of threads. Insects are attracted to its light and they get caught in those. That's well, where they get their food from. Brilliant. So if you come down here at night, there's lots of glowworms glowing on yes. this bank? Have you ever been to the Waitomo Caves? I have a very long time ago. This is your just own little as, mini Waitomo Caves. It's just as good. There's just as many. Ollie loves his glowworms, but they are not his favourite insect. My favourite insect is a cicada. His six legs uh, never gets that much longer than uh, two centimetres. Has transparent wings that are normally around about one centimetre long. Instead of having proper mouthpieces, it has a probisc, which is basically a a modified straw that it can poke into tree branches or twigs and suck out sap. So most of us will be familiar with cicadas as those noisy things in the middle of summer, but how do they start life? Where do they start life? Um, The mother cicada has an ovipositor, which is in the base of its tail. It pushes its eggs into twigs and branches. The eggs hatch small our nymphs immediately fall to the ground. They bury underground, which is where they stay for around about 2 to 17 years. Now, it varies in species. Up to 17 years underground? 
There's a periodical cicada in, well, Africa that stays underground for 17 years, so not really New Zealand, but there you are. So after they've been underground for however long, then what happens? I'll come up in the middle of the night. Occasionally you'll see a confused nymph come up in the day, but normally it'll be at night. Come up, they'll shed their skin. Takes them around about two hours for them to be fully hardened and able to fly. There you are, your cicada. And how long does an adult cicada live for? Two weeks. Two weeks? The adult cicada lives for two weeks. Now, you were gesturing at something when you were talking about cicadas laying the eggs. So what were you pointing out to me? You see this, it's kind of roughened a bit. So you've got a stem of a a thin branch on a tree where... There's an old one here. The eggs have been laid. Yeah, they have a kind of uh, spiky pipe that they push into the branch, the eggs are deposited on the side of the branch, it comes out and makes the next one. Now, even though it's a bit late for the cicadas to be calling... Not all of the cicadas are gone. There's a species of cicada called the April Green, which is year-round, I see it mainly in April. I see it's too high-pitched for adults to hear, so... Okay, can you hear it? Yeah. So Ollie is gesturing up the gully, and I have to do that normal adult thing of going, I cannot hear anything at all. <laughs> so it must be really high-pitched. Uh, around about at the age of 18, you start losing your ability to hear them. Ah, so it's quite good to be a young cicada expert then. Yeah. There are a few other species that can be too high-pitched for adults to hear, like the greater bronzed and red-tailed cicadas are occasionally too high, but... Normally the average adult would be able to hear them. How many species of cicada have you recorded here in this gully? Well, I'll just count. Six. Six different species. And do they all sound the same? No. So what kind of noises do those different six make? Um, the genus of clapping cicadas is called the clapping cicada, and in the genus of cap- clapping cicadas there's a cicada called the clapping cicada. So, confusing. Um, those ones there are generally the noisiest, um, as well as making the normal cicada sound. They also um, bang the rim of their wings on the substrate underneath them to make a clicking noise. But that there's only the clapping cicadas. So they're making a normal cicada sound and then also banging their wings. How do cicadas actually make their noise? Um, they have two sound organs on either side of their body called the timbals. The timbals are a kind of a series of plates on top of each other. When the timbals are contracted, then suddenly let go. It pops back into position with a kind of clicking, popping noise. That there being repeated over and over again by the cicada makes the cicada's noise. Do both male and female cicadas make the same kind of noise? In all cicada species, the female makes wing clicks but can't make the noises. In most cicada species, the male can't make wing clicking noises and only make the timbre noises. So the male's making these timbre noises, that's his way of going, hello, I'm over here. Yeah. And the female's clapping, is that her way of going, yeah, right, I can hear you, I can hear you. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Now, I was showing a five-year-old your book the other day and he said, oh, we find the shed skins of cicadas. Are there any shed skins around here? One second. Here. Oh, and right away you found one. Hmm. So do you want to describe it to me? 
It's a female chorus shell. You can tell that it's a chorus because it's generally larger than most other species of cicadas shells. It's a dark brown and it has, how I can tell it's a female, it has the, those tiny little ridges on the end of its tail. I didn't know that was how you could sex cicadas. That's really interesting. Well, I actually found that out. In the shell, that tiny little bump is actually the end of the ovipositor. So uh, the males don't really have that. You've just published an entire book on cicadas. How many species of cicadas do we have in New Zealand? Right now there are 42, but every year or so there are a few more described, so no one really knows. Well, there are still lots more species to be described in New Zealand. So there could be a job for you ahead, you reckon? (laughs) Um, People have recommended that to me. I guess they have a point. So why are you so interested in cicadas? Cicadas are just a common insect that everybody, anybody can find. Anybody who's interested can make a discovery. What's your favourite species? Uh, the Hamilton cicada. You can just treat it like a pet. Oh, it doesn't ask very much. They just need gravel at the bottom of the enclosure and a few bits of shrubbery and they're fine. Do they call for you? Yeah. Normally you don't really want them calling because they call in the middle of the night. Ah, so some cicadas call during the day, some call at night. Hamilton cicada call during both. Restless. I always think of cicadas in sunny weather, so is it true we only hear them on sunny days? Normally you would only hear cicadas on on sunny days, but the lesser bronze cicada, which is a shade singer, prefers shade, so they'll crawl underneath a leaf and start singing, but... Normally it would only be during summer that you would hear hear cicadas. So why did you write your book? Um, I decided to write the book after so many times asking my mum there needs to be a book on cicadas because I was learning lots about cicadas when I needed somewhere to put it all. Did it take long to write? A year and half a month. So, well, it did take quite a bit of work. Well, it's an exceptionally useful book, I have to say, so well done. Thank you. Are you getting lots of interest? Yes, lots. Have you managed to convert anyone else to be a cicada fan? Yes, lots of people. Well, on my website when I first started it, I think I got about four people, but then um, someone came and interviewed me, and next thing I think I had it around about... 40 new people. What's your website? Cicadas of New Zealand or nzcicada.co.nz There you go folks, go and check it out. Now because we didn't hear any cicadas outside, or at least none that a grown-up like me could hear, Ollie offered to play me some of his favourite, easily audible cicada calls. This is a chorus cicada singing. So that's the really common one we hear a lot? Yep. And that there's a clapping cicada. So I could, I could hear some clicking going on in there as well. Yeah. So that's when it's banging its wings, yep. is that right? Yeah. That would make a great beat for a song. 
Um, yeah, it was nicknamed the uh, Disco Beat Cicada by David Lane. It clicks a lot more than the chorus and the clapping cicada. So when it's not called the Disco Cicada, what is it called? Chirping. So it's called Chirping, the Chirping Cicada. So have you heard every cicada in New Zealand, or are you still hunting for some? Hunting. <laughs> What's on your wish list? I don't say Dr. Miles, so those are the only ones I have to go left in the North Island. In the South Island, there are lots of rare black cicadas, and there are so many of them, and they're so rare, so, right, you don't find that many of them. Thanks, Ollie, and good luck with finding all those cicadas. Ollie Hills is an 11-year-old cicada expert from Hamilton. He's author of the book, Cicadas of New Zealand, and you can find him at Cicadas of New Zealand on Facebook. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku, tangaroa, mei rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, psychologists at the University of Otago are trying to find out why our brain sometimes tells us to quit doing something that we know is good for us, but at other times it makes us carry on doing something that is bad for us. Blake Porter is working on this Marsden project, which is called Quit or Persist. We're using rats to study how the brain signals the rats to quit something. And rats are also mammals, so they have all the similar brain regions to us. might be a little smaller, but all the same brain regions are there. So we can record their brains and what their brains are doing and possibly see the same activity going on in humans. So they're a very good experimental subject that is, in a sense, a good mirror of ourselves. Yeah. They're a little smaller, um, but they're a lot easier to work with because they come in on time and work when you want them to. So here's sort of our recording room setup. This is where the rats are and doing their different behaviors. Um, We're testing a few different behaviors that induce some sort of quitting. Um, Quitting can be maybe you're just tired and you don't want to do something anymore, or maybe you quit because you're frustrated, can't do what you want to do. So... We have one task where the rats are more or less just running until they get tired and don't want to anymore. And then there's a few other papers, and we're sort of going off previous research that was using a weightlifting task where rats have to exert more and more energy um, to get a reward. So we're looking at that as well and to see once something gets so difficult, what does the brain do when it gets too hard and that it tells the rat to quit. What's the big question you're looking to answer? The overall goal would be to try to find the signal in the brain that tells an organism to stop doing some behavior due to environmental feedback. So this could be as simple as when something is too hard and you're too tired to do something, it could be as basic as when to stop eating. So you get feedback of your body's getting full. When does your brain say stop doing the eating behavior and go do something else. So it kind of ranges from everything to the most basic work. There is other labs who go as basic as just thirst. When does the brain tell you you're not thirsty anymore and how does it signal you to quit drinking and go do something more useful with your time all the way up to drug addiction and more nuanced sort of ways of quitting something like why are some people more successful at quitting drugs than others and what's going on in the brain and if we can find the brain regions involved in this we may be able to target therapies there um, like have drugs 
target um, those specific brain regions or have what are called biofeedback. So you can have people either in an MRI scanner or we measure their brain waves. And as they try to quit at different tasks, we can show them their brains and say, okay, that time was good, keep doing whatever you were doing, and you can actually use biofeedback of someone's brain to help train them to quit something. Um, So we'll see, but we first have to find where in the brain this is going on. Uh, So that's sort of the aim of this project is where in the brain, what brain regions are responsible for quitting behavior, and what is that signal, what does that quit signal look like in the brain? Do you have any sense of where in the brain it is? Um, We have some general ideas from a wide range of papers, both in rodent work and also in human work. So there's the frontal cortex, your executive function area that carries out all the decision making. We think this is likely involved and probably very strongly involved of when is it that something is not worth it anymore. The prefrontal cortex is doing this calculation of, okay, the cigarette was really good, I want to have it again. The cigarette was good, I want to have it again. And what is happening when you know, you have the knowledge that smoking's bad, and you know you should quit, but your brain is still having you smoke. Um, so something like that, what, how, what does that conflict look like? Um, and you can see studies where they'll take smokers who are trying to quit and those who have are better at quitting or have a higher rate of quitting, um, they'll have different activity levels in their prefrontal cortex than those who failed at quitting or keep relapsing. So that's sort of our first few clues of where to look. Now, just thinking of the flip side of quitting is probably mm-hmm. persisting yeah, at something. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, that thing of, oh, my God, I, w- I so want to give up but I'm not going to, yeah. but I'm not going yeah. to. And is that the same part of the brain? Yeah, it's really interesting, and this is what our lab has been doing in the past, is persistent signal and what Dr. Kristen Hillman has looked at in the past. And a really cool study was when you do brain surgery on people, your brain has no pain receptors. So most people, when you do brain surgery, you'll keep them awake, actually. You don't put them in general anesthesia. So there's a few experiments where people were undergoing brain surgery and they stimulated the prefrontal cortex in specific spots and people just got this sensation that they could do anything and they felt this like great rush of motivation and that they could persist at anything that came to them. These are self-reports of you stimulate and then ask the person, how are you feeling? And they were reporting that they felt like they could go and do anything. So we think this brain region is sort of doing both that maybe. And this is where it comes into what do these signals look like. So one signal might be to persist at something, while a different signal from this brain region might say, okay, this isn't worth anymore, we should stop. That's what we're hoping to find. And that idea that if you can recognize what it is that's happening in your brain, it might make it easier the second time. And I think what this is making me think of, I walk home from work and there's a steep hill. Mm -hmm. And often, if I'm really not in the mood, about halfway up the hill, I'll just go... I so don't want to do this hill. Yeah. But even if I sit down, the thing is I actually have to keep going. I have to persist in it yeah. because sitting down is not going to get me home. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So that that was my PhD work was actually having rats go up hills and to see what is their brain doing when they're going up and down hills and how does the brain represent that difficulty and how is it storing that information relating it to flat ground versus hills um, and how difficulty is represented. So there is some choices where 
you could persist and it might be worth it to keep going uphill but if you get only a third of the way up and you're like oh i can't go up any higher you might make the decision to stop doing that behavior of going up the hill and go back down and take a different route if it's available and you could see in the rats brains when they were making those different decisions more or less this would be previous work that Kristen did now of decision making where rats could go up a central stem of a maze and then they had the choice to either go left or to go right if they went right they had to jump over a barrier but they got a big reward if they went left there was no barrier but it was a small reward so you have this decision to make do i want to put in the energy and put in the effort to get a big payout or don't i and you can see the neurons in this prefrontal cortex they'll fire more to whichever side the rat thinks is worth it and that the rat subsequently goes to. So this is sort of well-known in neuroscience, but it's always so cool that you can sort of see in humans and in animals, you can see in their brain the decision before they actually make any sort of action because it's all computed in the brain beforehand before you actually act. So it might be on the order of milliseconds, um, like half a second or so, but you'll still know before the rat makes his choice, we know in the brain what he's going to choose. The brain's pretty amazing how it seems to be slightly ahead of what you're doing. Oh, yeah. It's about about 250, 500 milliseconds ahead, but uh, it is always ahead. Well, you've talked about the applications of the quitting, that idea that it could, Mm -hmm. you know, perhaps help somebody quit smoking. What would be the benefits for us of understanding persistence? It's a whole opposite side of things so it can almost be anything going to the gym uh sticking to a healthy diet uh persistence when you think about it sort of in everything we do and then there's persisting at good things versus persisting at things that might not be beneficial and that you so again it could be drug use or anything like that where you're persisting at something but you shouldn't be or you're persisting at something that is beneficial to you um, like going to the gym or eating healthy which is it's hard and we know we know it's worth it but we still don't act on it Um, so that's what we're we're interested in is what is driving the action of quitting or persisting at a task do you find a big variation in your rates and the way they behave which is it's usually frustrating in the moment but it's also interesting and it's what people do anyway so I have some rats that just love to do the tasks and love to put in the effort and will run and I'm more or less stuck in here for an hour while they while they run and and get the reward while other rats they'll five minutes and they're done and they don't want to do it Um, and it changes day to day Um, it might be one rat one day is up for it and wants to expend all the energy in the world and the next day he's just wants to hang out and doesn't want to do anything so it makes that analysis a little difficult but it is more realistic and rats definitely if anyone has pet rats they know they have just as much personality as dogs and cats that uh, each rat's different and a rat that's really doesn't want to make an effort versus a rat that just loves it Mm -hmm. are you seeing big differences in their brain signals i hope so i haven't gotten that far yet so right now i'm just analyzing all the data from all the rats but that is our intention in the future to try to look at slacker rats versus hard worker rats um, and see if there's any differences in between those two and there's a master's student lee who's going to be taking part in some more experiments next year yep so what's he going to be looking at lee's looking at the fatigue aspect of all this so 
you might be fresh in the day and you want to go to the gym and get it out of the way early, but a lot of us have to go to work first thing in the morning and then you've already had a long day of work and you're fatigued, then you still know you have to go to the gym. So Lee's interested in how does fatigue change the brain signals to get you to persist or quit at something. Thanks, Blake. That was postdoctoral researcher Blake Porter. He's in the psychology department at the University of Otago. And that's the show for this week. But you can listen to tonight's stories again, along with all our previous podcasts, by heading to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week, but until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Poor Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.